Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, what's up? Welcome to Beyond the Scenes. We are the podcast that goes deeper into segments and topics that originally aired on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. I'm Roy Wood Jr., as always, and today we're talking about a very serious issue, violence against women and why it's up to men to stop it. We'll also be taking a look at a recent segment about Kim Kardashian and Kanye West and the harassment that many women face when trying to leave a relationship. Now, before we get started, I just want to just add a quick little disclaimer. Today's conversation might contain some tough subject matter. So I just want everyone to be aware of that and give you an off ramp if you need it. All right. With that aside, let's roll the clip. For many women, every time they leave the house, it's a risk. And this is not something that men experience. Like when the pandemic hit, men were like, so just going outside is dangerous now? And women are like, yeah, add it to the list. Because for women, just being out in public means facing a wide array of potential threats from men. The top story at this hour, the violence against women and the conversation that it has sparked among women around the world. For many, it can feel like the only way to guarantee your personal safety is to stay at home, lock your doors, and never leave. The World Health Organization says one in three women worldwide have been subjected to physical or sexual violence. And data shows the violence starts alarmingly young. Around the world, six women are killed every hour by men. And for women of color, their cases rarely in the headlines. On social media, the post, text me when you get home, now going viral. Women all over the world sharing their stories. As men, we should be steering this conversation to where it belongs, centered on us, because this is our responsibility not to be creeps, all right? So let's not make it the one thing that we don't take credit for. Today, I'm joined by Daily Show writer Christiana Mbakwe, and I'm also joined by journalist and author of the book, No Visible Bruises, Rachel Louise Snyder. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Roy. Thank you. Now, this topic, Christiana, you know, the show first covered the topic after the murder of uh, Sarah Everard, the young woman who was abducted while walking home from a friend's house in London. And it sparked a much larger conversation that even something as simple as walking home isn't safe for women. What are some of the ways that women encounter violence on a daily basis? It can be anything. It can be being on the subway and a man sitting a bit too close and intimidating you with his body language and and becoming aggressive when you maybe ask him to back off. 
Um, and it can get a lot more gruesome than that. There's an entire spectrum of violence that women have to face and navigate in their daily life. There's a lot of issues on the show, Christiana, and you know, we, we're on Comedy Central. But sometimes, and you know, there's times where the comedy has to wait. How do you prioritize which things to inform society, well, men, let's just keep it real. How do, you, <laughs> how do you all decide to prioritize, all right, men are dumb, which things do they need to understand first? Do you start with the base level stuff? I, I hear you laughing. <laughs> like, how do you all decide which things? Because some of it you can sprinkle a joke or two in and you can kind of, like, catcalling. We've talked about that on the show in the past. But catcalling is a symptom of a far bigger issue. So how are you all just, you know, in the writer's room able to figure out and sparse out what people need to know versus what you could possibly try to make funny? I mean, it's particularly that Sarah Everard case, which happened where I'm from, South London. I know that park. I've walked through that park many times. Um, And thinking about how horrifying it was, it is difficult to find any sort of humour in it because, frankly, the subject matter isn't funny, right? There's nothing funny about a woman being murdered when she's just simply trying to get home. And when I was working on that, I was thinking from the perspective of a woman, what parts of it are kind of funny in a sick way? Um, And the joke I wrote that did make the show was like, when you go out with your girls and they're like, text me when you get home, um, which is a thing that all women do. If you don't Mm -hmm. text them when you get home, they get freaked out and you wake up in the morning and you're trending on Twitter. It's like, fine, Christiana, (laughs) because every woman just thinks the worst, right? Sometimes you just get home, you're a little bit tipsy, you fall asleep, you forget to text your loved ones. And that's happened to me on a few occasions. When my now husband, when we was just dating, he would get freaked out if I didn't text him when I'd got home from somewhere. And once he was even going to call his cousin to come to my apartment to check if I was there, right? It became a big thing. But it's kind of funny that if you don't text when you get home, they're going to send out a search party, even if it was just that you kind of overslept or forgot. Um, and that we try and find the funny in those kind of the, the nuances of it all and how it makes your experience as a woman kind of inconvenient because you're constantly worried about your safety and then reassuring the people that you love that you are indeed safe. To, to Christiana's point about precautions, right? A woman waking up to being searched for because she didn't charge her phone and she didn't hear the text messages or whatever. Those are jokes amongst men. Those are text me when you get home. Ha ha ha. I remember doing a college show years ago when I was younger in my younger days. When I (laughs) still pull off a student loan or a book buyback joke. The university would give comedians a swag bag. And the swag bag was really the same stuff they were giving the kids for coming to the show. And there would be a cup and a little rah-rah-rah go-team towel. And every now and then there would be a rape whistle in the bag. And I can distinctly remember, you know, some of the other male comedians that was on the show. But they were like, "Take look at the rape, rape whistle and just throw that back on the ta I don't need one of those. Give me a key ring. <laughs> As a man, you were oblivious to a lot of that. What are some of the other precautions that women have to take every day when they leave their home that men are just completely oblivious and stupid to? I mean, I take precautions in my home. 
you know, I have an alarm system. I live in a city that has fairly high crime. And um, I remember about midnight one night, I, I stay awake really late. I'm a writer. We're, you know, we're creatures of habit, I guess. And this person knocked at my door and I was only like three feet away from the door. And I just like, holy fucking shit. You know, that like moment you're like, ah. And, um, and then I went and hid behind like one of my chairs in my living room, which is stupid. Like, what's that going to do? Like, I'm not here. I'm not here. And I just remember feeling this, like, you know, of course I called the police and whatever, but th there's this feeling I, I get, I don't know if it's the same for you, Christiana, where you're, it feels like it doesn't matter what prep preparations I have. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a journalist who's covered war zones and natural disasters. And, you know, I took a class for journalists and hostile environment and all these things that are supposed to like, give me the, some advantage that other women don't have. But at the end of the day, I don't, I don't feel those advantages in any tactile way. I still feel vulnerable. It really is something eye-opening, you know, even something that I try to do is not walk too fast or make my presence known. If I'm coming up behind you, you, <clears throat> you make a call for you, scuff your feet. Like, you just want to be present of other people's space as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, to the point you made, there sometimes feels like a futility to all of these precautions. Right. Because yeah. the implication is the women that do suffer from violence is that they weren't cautious enough. But of course we know there's not, that's not true. There's kind of this randomness to it all, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for me, I have all of these measures. I tend not to go out too late by myself, you know, um, someone always knows where I am and where I'm expected to, when I'm expected to be, to be back. Some of that is just growing up, African, your parents are strict. <laughs> Where are you going? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, so like, I'm very used to, you know, you don't want to be called like a Roman ambassador because you're always in the street. So I feel like I'm always trying to be accountable to someone. So that's probably just like immigrant trauma, really. But um, My parents are like, are you still you, here? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just kind of just always... Just these little things. Um, I would rarely order maybe Uber Eats when it's just me and my son in the house because I'm concerned about if a man sees me alone. You know, mm. you're, it's very, you're very vulnerable as a woman when a man knows you're alone, you know. So oftentimes I'll send my husband to the door or even if we have a handyman come to the house, I won't come downstairs because it's just like, oh, there's, a, there's a man I don't know in this house. Uh, have you ever kind of, have you ever done that thing where you like shout as if someone's there? Yeah, I've yeah, done exactly. That. I've done that before. Yeah, With people. I have, I live in a house, not an apartment, but people who come and do surveys and stuff like that. I'm just like, oh, hold on, my husband needs me. Like, I'm not married, you know. It's just yeah. Just pr that that act, you learn to pretend quickly and and use it as some sort of shield because from experience, I have learned that men will defer to men and you know, a woman will tell you if a man comes up to you and asks for your phone number, if you say, oh, I have a husband or I have a boyfriend, they will respect that invisible man far more than the woman they see in front of them. So you just learn to yeah. do all of these things. and Far more but, than a woman saying, no, I don't. I'm not interested. You yeah. You know, that yeah. that's not enough. He will yeah. rather respect this mythical creature, this mythical boyfriend yeah. or husband, um, than respect your consent 
in wanting to engage. So how do we get to this place? Why, like, why, why is the burden on women to stay safe than on men to change their behavior? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a deep, yeah. That's a deep question. I don't want to make it seem like I walk around every moment of every day with this um, like hyper vigilance. Like I, I don't. In general, I feel safe in my life and in the life I've carved out. Um, sometimes going to unfamiliar places, my you know, I have my spidey senses are a little heightened. I think that to answer that question, the simplest answer to me, why has there been this entitlement is because they can. And because all of the systems of our world, you know, from the judiciary to law enforcement, to all these major systems, education, they all started, you know, by men with men in mind, you know, I'm talking more specifically about this country, but I think it's true of other countries as well that like, Men write the rules, men make the rules, men, you know, um, in many countries still today control the, the the literal behavior of the women around them, all the women around them. And so I think it feels to me like we're going through a growth period, even just having this conversation. We didn't have these conversations when I was like in college, no. you know, a bazillion years ago or whatever. So I, I do think it's growth. Well, let's backtrack for a second first before the next question I have for you. Let's talk about the different types of violence against women, because so far we're talking about, you know, home invasion or someone kidnapping. But if you could, Rachel, break down, you know, some of the other ways that men can abuse or create some sort of domestic discomfort, terrorism, I'm going to use the word, create a little domestic terrorism on people that doesn't necessarily involve physical violence or physical harm? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's a reason that my book is called No Visible Bruises, right? It's like, so, you know, there's emotional abuse, there's psychological abuse, and there's coercive behavior. For example, I covered the um, Orlando Pulse trial that Omar Mateen killed you know, 49 The nightclub shooting, yes. The nightclub shooting. And his, um, he had been married twice. So he, he was, it was his second marriage when the shooting happened. And with both women, he had been incredibly controlling. So with his second wife, he moved her 3,000 miles across the country where she had no one. She was from California and he moved her to Florida. She didn't drive and he wouldn't let her drive. So she was really isolated. She didn't have her name on the bank accounts and he would give her money to spend for her and her son every week. None of these are physical violence. And in fact, none of them are against the law. It's just a way of coercing and controlling somebody. Now, he did actually strangle both women non-fatal non-fatally obviously um and in 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 florida in fact in most states if you're convicted of non-fatal strangula strangulation it can carry a 10-year prison sentence but he was never convicted i mean he could have should have been in prison when that orlando pulse shooting happened but he was never mm -hmm. charged and never convicted so you know that's two types of violence one physical one not but there's a lot of way i mean there's another there's another guy in my book who um went out into the countryside. They lived in Montana, went out into the countryside and got a rattlesnake and brought it home. And he kept it in a cage um, and told his wife that he was going to put it in bed with her or put it in the shower with her if she did anything that pissed him off. You don't have to physically be violent to control somebody. 
And there's no, there's only two states with laws against coercive control right now, and they're both brand new and really haven't been tested. Yeah. And, you know, especially in this digital age, there's so many ways where you can terrorize a woman without even physically seeing her or touching her. You can leak her nudes. You can threaten to leak any intimate videos or photos you've taken. You can create, you know, fake Instagram and Twitter accounts and follow her every move. And whether it's a Snapchat, you know, there's women that say he was following me on Snapchat and turning up to where I was because of, you know, like geolocations now, right? It's very easy to find where people are. Doxing. There are just so many ways that if a man wants to make a woman's life incredibly difficult, but still be within the limits of the law, he can do so. And it's quite terrifying. For both of you then, what are social media companies, because on the other side of the break, I want to talk about um, old Kanye and Kim and mm. my friend Pete <laughs> Davidson. But what are what do you all, in your eyes, the two of you, what do you think social media companies are doing right now to try and regulate that type of behavior? Is enough happening in that regard? Because it feels like if I can get a rattlesnake or I can intimidate you, I can drive by your job, that's more individual one-on-one. But social media is a space. It's regulated. There are moderators, at least they claim that there's moderators, who are supposed to be monitoring and policing and regulating that type of behavior. Are social media companies doing enough? Um, I'm I'm not an expert on that in any way. I think we know that they are kind of failing in a lot of areas in terms of racial harassment, abuse. Um, A lot of women do do not feel safe on Twitter or YouTube or even streaming on Twitch because of what they'll see in the comment section. I know Instagram has a feature now that if you block someone, you can also put the option to block any other accounts they create. But for some of these men or sometimes women, who are incredibly obsessive and determined, that type of safe measures is simply not enough. But I I think even if we resolve some of the social media piece and make tech companies ensure that everyone that has, say, a Twitter account is someone who's not anonymous and they have to be a real human being and et cetera, et cetera, it's such a wider societal problem. It just doesn't get to the root and the heart of the issue. And I think that's yeah. that's the, the big problem. I think part of the problem is they're not regulated, right? We as as society are relying on them to, you know, have our best interests at heart. Like, like there's a group of 20 people reading every post on Facebook. Like it's just, it's, it's an algorithm and sometimes it catches it, sometimes it doesn't. Lately, I've been getting um, these emails that go through, I have a website and I have a I have someone else who gets that email for me. It doesn't come directly to me. And they keep sending the same thing, like Rachel Snyder has a lot to answer for with pictures of me pulled from all over the web. And that's it. There's no threat. There's no um, direct question about what it is I have something to answer for. And, I, you know, I, um, yeah, it makes me nervous. I have a kid. I, you know, live where I live. Um, I've alerted campus security where I'm a professor. So, but... what can you do? It, none of it is against the law and none of it is like specific, you know? Yeah, it's a very great area. Well, after the break, I want to talk a little bit about um, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West and 
how Christiana and the Daily Show writers almost got Trevor Noah into a fight with Kanye West. And I want you to explain yourself. Almost. Uh, it was a real fight. Uh, he might have came up here. You never know. <laughs> we, it was during a hiatus week, so Kanye couldn't come fight us when he was that <laughs> It's beyond the scenes. We'll be right back. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about Kim Kardashian and Kanye West and everything that Kanye has been doing against her. And we did a segment on that on the show. Well, Trevor did. I want to say we in case mm. Kanye come up here and try to fight me and say it's Trevor. <laughs> Trevor did it, Kanye. Uh, but that's probably one of the most high-profile examples of harassment that we have right now. You know, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard as well. But, Christiana, we spoke on Kim and Kanye on the show. How did you all decide – how to tackle this topic, because this isn't a typical Daily Show piece. You know, we're told the night before what's going to be on the show the next day. Um, And sometimes it's so we can just read up more on the stories or just know what's happening. And when I saw in Slack that we were doing Kim and Kanye, I was like, oh, that's surprising. When anything involves a Kardashian, it immediately becomes tabloid. And we historically don't touch tabloid stories. So there was this, just the very natural reluctance that comes with us, like, why are we doing this very tabloid story? And then there was some trepidation because it involves minors. You know, they have children and there's something icky about discussing such a public dispute when there are children at the centre of it. And even though these are children that are on reality TV a lot, this just feels a lot more sensitive. And, like, there are so many landmines, for lack of a better word, about how we could weave it and do it well. And, again, remember, we're a comedy show, so we're going to be making jokes, right? So it's the task is incredibly difficult. But the feeling was from... Trevor and when Trevor and myself spoke about it, that even though this was, quote unquote, being viewed as a tabloid story, that it was really a microcosm of so many themes that happen in society in general. And there were bigger lessons to learn from it. And Kim, in a despite her vast wealth and resources, was kind of emblematic of what so many women are going through right now. 
and they're mm-hmm. not being believed and people are treating it like a joke and everyone is standing by watching this escalating behaviour and not spotting them as red flags. Um, so I think that being our entry point made a, what was a very difficult and tricky process made it um, a lot easier. And then, you know, from the comedy side, I, what I found funny, and it, it, it was a joke that did make the segment, was just like, you know, Kim, in her effort to kind of rebrand, has gone down this social justice route and she's training, she's trying to do the bar or whatever. And in her spare time, she frees black men from jail, right? That's, that's what kind of her hobby is right now. Black women too. Black Shout women to too. So what are yeah. the optics of you like freeing black men from jail in your spare time and then calling the police on the black man who happens to be your ex-husband harassing you? Like she, she's kind of in this real branding, real life conundrum, which isn't funny, but it's also funny, right? And, and we were just yeah. talking about that. Like, there are many reasons why she can't call the police, but there is probably on her part, like, this looks hypocritical. I'm supposed to be, like, this abolitionist. So we were just teasing through the comedy in the complications of it all, but still trying to convey the gravitas of the situation and, and our belief that Kim could be in grave danger. Even even someone like me, I was I'm like so tuned in to these issues. And it's yeah. like when I heard that monologue from him, I was like, yes, of course. Even I had been had this like casual celebrity relationship to her. Like, I don't care yeah. about all that. There's a lot of people who go like Kim Kardashian. She loves publicity. She loves celebrity. She loves all of this. She does the Kardashians. This is her life. This is her thing. Yeah. And I get it. But... There's also an element of a woman saying to her ex, hey, please leave me alone. You know what I mean? Please leave me alone. Because I'll be honest with you, what I see from this situation, I see a woman who wants to live her life without being harassed by an ex-boyfriend or an ex-husband or an ex-anything. What she's going through is terrifying to watch and it shines a spotlight on what so many women go through when they choose to leave. You know, people always say that phrase to women. They go like, why didn't you leave? Oh, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you leave? Yeah, because a lot of women, women realize when they do leave, the guy will get even crazier. And when I say crazy, I don't mean mental health crazy. I'm like, it's, you, you understand what I mean. You know what I mean. The point is that Kim Kardashian and countless other women, they find themselves in a terrible position, you know? Because asking Kanye to stop clearly isn't helping. If Kim cannot escape this, Kim Kardashian, if she cannot escape this, then what chance do normal women have? Roy will tell you, Trevor and I have a very interesting dynamic and relationship. We kind of like butt heads a lot. And that's, I think, how we produce some really good stuff. We, we don't always agree, but there's a deep respect there. And mm-hmm. it was just one of these things that I had been on sabbatical and I'd been talking a lot about it on my Instagram. And Trevor follows me on Instagram. So he was seeing a lot of what I was saying about this particular case and then he was like, mm-hmm. he wanted to do it on the show, but he didn't know I was back off sabbatical. And then he reached out. He was like, Christian, I'm doing Kim K tomorrow. Like, it's going to yeah. be weird because you're not here. And I'm like, no, I'm back. And we kind of just brainstormed <laughs> it and just did a lot of talking. And I just gave him my whole spiel about it. And then the next day did like a smaller meeting with the other producers and our showrunner. And then, yeah, it really, it really came together. And it, I think we were like buzzing for about a week afterwards because mm-hmm. of the conversation it generated that felt yeah. so important. Trevor said that he was biking down um, Hudson Highway 
And some dude was jogging and then ran after him and said, I want to say thank you to you for what you said about Kim Kardashian. I never saw it that way, but now I'm different. It was like, look, I was like, look at you, Trevor, making allies. I know, <laughs> like, that's a lot the of thing. men like, were like, I don't yeah. like those Kardashians, but wow, this is horrible. Like the way right. people really switched and, you know, Kim's kind of unlikable to a lot of people. And I don't think you should be likable to be a victim, but it says yeah. a lot that if you can get people to be like, oh, you know what? if it's not it's not right so it felt yeah. like important it felt important you know totally and coming from him it's the you know if i said it i'd get like yeah. you know two likes it, or whatever. it can't come it can't come from a woman that's why yeah. I, I i explained that to him i yeah. was like look trevor the reason it's resonating so much is a bit like racism when when white people say this is racist everyone's like oh wow this must really be racist so mm-hmm. if a man comes out and says this is violence. This is, yeah, yeah. And, let me show you. And how to everyone look at this. kind of steps back and says, "Well, if I'm because the bar men have for violence is different. They always feel that women are being hysterical. So for Trevor yeah. to be like, "Hey guys, <laughs> I'm not saying right. he's going to do anything, but we may need to just step back." Right. So then, Rachel, to that point, what are some of the examples that you've seen in Kanye's behavior that are textbook examples of this of the harassment and the abuse that women deal with when uh, trying to leave a relationship? Yeah, that's a good question because my guess is that what we're seeing on on the outside is just at the tip of the iceberg. You know, there have been the texts, there's been the manipulation of his social media, right? So he has this kind of like hidden army behind him. There's been um, the children used as leverage, right? Like, I, oh, I, you know, I was not allowed to go to the birthday party. I wasn't told, yeah. that, you know, there's that kind of stuff. And the video, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but it's the collective of that that is concerning to me. And not just the collective, but the escalation of it, where it's like he's upping the ante. And I should mention that he apparently a week or two ago, or, you know, recently said he's going to get help and whatever. And, I, you know, I hope that's true and that he does get help. Um, but it's, it's the escalation, which I think the most extreme is the video, right? Like it all kind of leads up to that video. Um, uh, we're talking about the Pete Davidson, where he threatened Pete Davidson in a music video. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I know that he hides behind his art, right? That he says, I'm an artist, this is just art. But really, um, you could then choose anybody, right? Like you, you actually have Pete Davidson's name in your song. So it's not art when, when it's a threat. Like it, yeah, I don't, I don't think there. buying a house across the street from your from your soon to be ex wife is exactly art. No, right, That's right, kind right. of a jerk move. Yeah, it's this stalk. It's this stalking. This harassment. You know, she's been very good about not making too many public statements, but she's made a few, and even that, I feel like, fuels him, um, fuels the type of person that he is to like up the game to him. Christiana, the thing that I found very interesting about Trevor's piece is that you're looking at an abusive dynamic between Kim and Kanye. And for the people that have read Trevor's book and know Trevor's history, Trevor is a child that grew up in an abusive home. So he's seen a lot of the stuff that is starting to mirror itself. Now, how much of a decision was there for Trevor to put his own emotions into, into the segment? Because I felt like somewhere underneath all of that, there was still a piece of compassion for Kanye and wanting Kanye to get better. It didn't seem like a full-blown vilification, like a dunk on him. Like you weren't dunking as much as it was acknowledging the behavior, acknowledging how corrosive it is and trying to find solutions. We were very keen not to villainize anybody in this piece, right? Because 
I think that's the instinct of, that the public lean towards. You know, we need to have a villain in this story, you need to have a hero in this story, you need to have a perfect victim in this story. And it's really complicated. Um, Kanye has also been very open about his mental health struggles over the years and been courageous and been candid about the difficulties he had. And not to use his mental illness as a route to justify any of this this behaviour, because that's not Mm. the case. But that was really important context for us, that there are are times when Kanye's unwell, there's times when he's lucid, you know, he's a very complicated man. But none of that justified what was happening. So we were very keen to say, okay, what Kanye's doing is terrible. It's harassment. But we're not here to beat Kanye up or beat men like Kanye up. We didn't think that was a productive way to frame things. Um, because it just wouldn't land. <laughs> it, it, it would have gone over the heads of a lot of people who, interesting enough, so many people were Team Kanye. That, that, that was where the public discourse was at that point. And anyone that came up against Kanye in a sp- specific way and was like, Kanye's the villain, they weren't hearing it. So we were like, okay, Kanye's doing a really bad thing and we need to get people who don't see that to see that. We also need, really need to make it clear about what Kim is going through. And we also knew that the, there is an audience that was unsympathetic because she's incredibly wealthy. She has this reality show. She's seen as a lowbrow celebrity who has no talent, even though I think her talent is like making money. What do you think was going to happen when you got with <laughs> yeah, Kim? Yeah, exactly. You think booty? You be there's, stealing ideas from black women? It's, oh, yeah. There's the appropriation piece. There's the whorephobia yeah. and the fact that this empire was kind of built on a sex tape. There, there are so many things that mean that people do not want to receive it when they hear that Kim Kardashian, a woman like Kim Kardashian, is being harassed and stalked. Mm-hmm. They, they just don't get it. So we were conscious of all the nuances of the piece going into it and just trying to cover each part of the argument. And, of course, you heard Trevor say a lot, I'm not saying that Kanye is going to kill Kim or God forbid that happens, but he's just saying the warning signals are here and he was able to spot those signals, I think, because of his personal experience. But I will say that, you know, when you work with Trevor on a headline, he's not somebody, he's quite journalistic in the sense that he doesn't necessarily want to insert himself in the story. That's not his impulse. His impulse is actually to kind of be like um, impartial observer in times. And then at the end, he'll kind of give his take. And I feel he was a bit reluctant to tell the personal side of his story, not because he's not courageous enough to do that. He's been really open about his life. But there was a feeling that perhaps that would colour the entire piece. But in my view, Trevor's personal story was perhaps one of the most powerful parts of that segment because he has been a witness to that type of violence and intimidation and harassment. And he was saying, guys, this is also coming from a very personal connection. Um, and I, I feel the audience found that compelling as kind of a end note to this entire monologue that he did. He built a really strong case and then he brought himself into to the story. I grew up my whole life in an abusive household, right? Most of my, let's say from the age of nine to whatever, 16. One of the things I found most interesting was how often people told my mom that she was overreacting 
What I found interesting was how many times people told my mom to calm down, people told my family to calm down, everyone, you know? And everyone had different reasons. Oh, I remember once we went to the police station and they said to my mom, oh, but did you talk back? Is that, is that why you're here? You know, uh, you know, oh, but, but what did you say to him? It's all these questions, all these questions. I remember seeing this as a child, by the way. You see this as a child, you know? And you see a world where women are questioned for what is happening to them as opposed to people questioning what is happening to them. And for years, people said this shit. Ah, no, this, ah, you know, these, this, this happens, this hap- that happens, this, everyone, police, some family, stranger, whatever it was, whatever it was. And I'll never forget one day, I got a call from my brother saying, hey, mom has just been shot in the head. She's in the hospital now, she's just been shot. And, and I'm, I'm not saying it to make it about me, I'm just saying, Maybe that's why I look at the story differently, to be honest with you, is I go, it seems like nothing. And again, I'm not saying Kanye will, please. I'm not saying he will, not saying that. But you see it in all these stories where people say, we saw it, but we didn't. Whether it's the people around him, whether it's the people in their lives, whether it's us as society condoning or not condoning. And I know it's nuanced. I know, I'm not saying Kanye is just a bad guy, please. But just as society, man, we have to ask ourselves questions. Do we wish to stand by and watch a car crash when we thought we saw it coming? Or do we at least want to say, hey, slow down. Let's, pu- let's all put our hazards on because there's a storm right now and some shit might go down. Let's just, let's just put our hazards on. If it doesn't happen, hey, the worst thing we did was we all had our hazards on like idiots. I'm, I'll be fine to say I was an idiot, nothing happened. I'd rather be in that situation than to be in one where I say, man, I wish we didn't think the whole thing wasn't worth looking at. It was beautiful. And it was, I, th- I love what you said about not, um, not, essentially not taking away Kanye's humanity because that's, that's how we don't solve problems is by flattening the other person. Right. Yeah. I spent a lot, I've spent a lot of time with abusers and, um, they're interesting because the, you know, the, they're sort of simultaneously out of control and in control at the same time, you know, mm. And they're usually filled with shame about their behavior too. It's not like they're doing this and they they feel good about it. They feel, as one researcher said to me, I've never met a happy abuser ever. Yeah. I mean, they're not happy either. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Trevor in a ridiculously long Instagram post um, about Kanye and really to yeah. Kanye, I don't know, this must be like some special celebrity Instagram he got, because <laughs> this man is like 10, 15 paragraphs. But one part of it that really, really stuck out and touched me, you know, he said, it breaks my heart to see you like this. I don't care if you support Trump. I don't care if you roast Pete. I do, however, care when I see you on a path that's dangerously close to peril and pain. I've woken up too many times and read headlines about men who've killed their exes, their kids, and then themselves. I never want to read that about you. If you're just joking about it all, then I'm an idiot for caring, and so be it. But I'd rather be the idiot who spoke up and said something to you in life than the cool guy who said nothing and then mourned you in prison or the grave. Yeah. We're, Gosh. He should write a book. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's amazing. Book. I got goosebumps yeah. from that. <laughs> You know, and in a time where so many people can just ride the wave of the way the media has set this up, it's Kanye crazy, Kim tripping. Man, let that man see his kids. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what role does the media play in shaping 
the the one-sidedness of it all yeah. because no one can find yeah. the nuance in the middle and i know that the media plays a role in it so you journalists what did you do wrong <laughs> um yeah, I mean, what I would say, I, I have I have a lot to say about this, so sit back. No. Yeah. How does the media help shape this narrative that keeps people we've, from... We've, we've minimized um, the problems the problems of, of wealthy, famous people. We, we, we put them on a pedestal, right? So, yeah. so that's a particular problem with Kim and Kanye, that, you know, we don't feel for her because how could she have problems when she's, when she's rich or she's beautiful or she has this, you know, perfect butt or whatever. But I think there's a bigger problem with the media in minimizing domestic violence as a as a whole. I mean, if I could take the phrase domestic dispute and like blow it off the landscape of media forever, I would, because we're talking about crime and there's yeah. no other crime I can think of where we downplay it and call it a dispute. Like like Omar Mateen non-fatally strangling, strangling his first wife or his second wife is not a domestic dispute. It's attempted murder. And we need to call it what it is. To me, it also just feels like sexism, right? No one cares about the pain of women. People don't take it yeah. seriously. Right. Yeah. It's 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 not seen as valid pain. And my f anger at the media narrative about Kim and Kanye at before we'd done that segment was that everyone was treating it like a joke. There was this hee hee ha ha yeah. part. It was Kanye's yeah. put a, a, um, a truck full of roses outside of Kim's house. Hee right. hee ha ha. Like all he's of it. He's fighting for his family. He's fighting for it. Right. Was, people right. thought it was right. funny. And I was looking at it like, this is scary. Love makes you crazy. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. it was just, yeah. it, it was seen as a funny kind of tabloid spat rather than yeah. Yeah. a really insidious de domestic i always tell my daughter like if a, if a man hires an orchestra to come play on your lawn like that's not romantic run <laughs> run as fast as you can yeah. it's kind of like grand <laughs> gestures i mean it, it's, yeah. it's used so much now i kind of hate the phrase but love bombing you know so it's all of yeah. this stuff he was doing and i was looking at it and i thought i'm scared for this woman Mm -hmm. And the only other people I saw saying that were like other women, but the media coverage, just the way the story was framed, was not framed as this is a, a mother and a wife um, who is in danger, in, in some sort of peril. It was like, uh, Kim K, you know, doesn't want Kanye's flowers, ha ha ha, he's doing his best. It was weird. And even if it goes south, it's just called a crime of passion. Like, it's yeah. still like, well, you yeah. know, you love, you'd be tripping sometimes. Yes. Right. But, you know, right. you're still a good person. Right. How, how, do, how do women who don't have the resources and the, the, the high level of celebrity that Kim Kardashian have, how do we get the media to even look at these stories? Because there's a million Kim Kardashians if, exactly. happening on a regular basis in this country, especially women of color. How do we get the media to start turning their eyes towards those those types of stories? I have no idea. And I think the distressing thing about all of this is that if a woman with Kim Kardashian's resources and visibility and wealth is this vulnerable and the world kind of just looks on and laughs, what does it mean for the woman who's undocumented? 
and Mm -hmm. is afraid to go into the police station because there's a language barrier and she's afraid of getting deported and her abuser uses that against her and her community are using that against her. What does that say about a woman who's being financially abused and doesn't have access to her bank account and has no idea about an escape route? Because the reason we didn't want to villainize Kanye is because abusers are very complicated people. There are so many men that people are like, he'd never beat his wife. He's the nicest guy ever, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they're really charismatic mm-hmm. and charming. And we wanted to make it clear that the men that are doing this to women in your everyday life are often like Kanye in the sense that you're enamored with a part of them. You really like them. They make you feel good. But there's also Mm -hmm. a side to them that's much darker. And I don't know how we make that change where people are actually really concerned by the, about the, underprivileged and under-resourced women or and us even learning that super wealthy women who perhaps become stay-at-home mums and relied on their husband for income for the last 15 to 20 years they're vulnerable too it's it's a really hard thing because I don't think most people understand how difficult it is for a woman to escape especially um, the lower on the socioeconomic ladder she is There was research done by a woman named Joan Meyer at um, George Washington University. She did research on custody cases where where there were custody disputes and found that in 25% of the cases where abuse was alleged by a woman, they lost the kids. They lost the kid. The woman lost the kids. So, you know, abusers use that. I'm going to have your kids taken away from you. And it works. It works, right? There's There's, you know, there's a guy that I spoke with years ago, a researcher who talked about how abusers, just like you say, Christiana, are, they're charming. That's how they get victims in the first place. They're often very, very quick courtships. I'm completely um, skeptical of fast courtships now, I have to admit. (laughs) And they mess up victims' lives because we want our victims to be a certain way, right? We all have, I mean, I think even if you weren't a child of the eighties, like I was, you still have an image of like the burning bed, right? Like the, the that's your, yeah. that's your image. And the fact is like that, that's not realistic. You know, people can't leave. Women can't leave because bureaucracy holds you in place. You can't, you know, get the name of your husband off your checking account without his permission interacting with him. You can't sign your kids up for another school. I did a story on a woman who had been to shelter in and out of shelters for 20 years, she tried to leave. They had two girls and he got really smart. The last time she tried to leave, she went to a shelter in Maine. She lived in Massachusetts and he wrote a letter to the school system saying, you know, such and such has uh, taken off. She's unstable. She's uh, bipolar. I'm afraid that she's going to do something with with the kids. So don't let her register the kids at a school without my permission. And he's I mean, charming enough. Right. So yeah. And he, he's, he, and he ended up killing her, you know, and killed himself. So they know they, our systems lock victims in place every bit as much as our own sort of social responsibility to not minimize this and not marginalize victims. Well, after the break, I want to talk about solutions to these issues. And I want to talk about the phrase toxic masculinity. <laughs> that's, 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 you know, I just saw you shifting your seat. There. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We're going to talk about that. It's beyond the scenes. We'll be right back. 
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know, we talk about these events of violence, but we usually only talk about them after something terrible has happened. On the prevention side, ladies, what can we do to keep these crimes from happening in the first place? That's a good question. I will say that uh, other countries are doing some interesting things. There's um, in the UK, for example, there's a there's a violence prevention hotline that um, anybody, men or women, although it is 80% men who call, can call and get help if they are in a moment that is um, problematic. I'll say problematic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not a solution in that it's going to, you know, solve violence against women forever and ever, but it is what you're trying to do, what you're trying to do is disrupt a moment of violence or potential violence. And so I think it's a useful tool. In the States, we just uh, signed, reauthorized the Violence Against Women Act. Um, It had been sort of stagnant for mm, since 2013, roughly. And for the first time ever, they have earmarked funds to um, figure out what works in anti-violence prevention programs. And so to me, that's a really positive step that um, we're sort of talking about, not just um, how to stop the violence before it happens, but how to keep victims in their community and in their families, because, you know, we haven't talked about this and we probably don't have a lot of time, but shelter is not a very good um, response to like take, you know, a whole family out of everything familiar, allow them two suitcases, stick them in one room, you know? So I do think there's a lot of solutions out there and I don't think that they are necessarily law enforcement solutions. I think that law enforcement often makes a terrible situation much, much worse. And that we need to like in certain cities in um, San Diego, in um, I think Baltimore here in Washington, DC, We have um, programs where, and I think Denver has one, where um, domestic violence advocates will will go on calls with um, police officers. And I think that's really, really important because just the the police as a presence with all of their gear and their tactical stuff, like they're giant. They're almost like machines and they walk into a room. They're intimidating, right? So they're perceived to make the situation worse. Yeah. And to to Rachel's point about you know, police not being the solution. I, I'll say that the subculture, 
for lack of a better word, I, I grew up in, in South London, was um, predominantly made up of West African and West Indian immigrants, right? And if I speak from the vantage point of that particular subculture, civic institutions have a lot of power, let's say. So whether that's the church, um, whether it, those are like community groups that are linked to your tribe or your clan, um, whether those are mosques, local community centers, these civic institutions and the people that, that run them, so pastors and imams and the deacons, etc., have a huge amount of authority over what people do, right? You know, if you're having medical issues, you go to your pastor. You know, like, you know I'm just talking about the way it, immigrant subcultures and subcultures in tend, tend to work. And from my perspective, I think that a lot of community-based training needs to happen in a lot of civic institutions um, about understanding what abuse is and understanding who a victim is and understanding that every man can't be rehabilitated and that women need to be protected and children need to be protected. And when a woman comes forward, she shouldn't be ostracized. She shouldn't be told to stay. But we also need to give her the means to escape. That means she remains within the community because it's actually the isolation that means a lot of women return with their children because when you leave the man, you leave the community. And for people, I would say, especially of like minority descent, if you're of African or Asian extent, where being community, it's more about the collective than the individual, that is incredibly devastating because you lose your cousins, you lose your in, you lose so much. I think a big part of the solution is going into all of these subcultures, all of these communities, and specifically looking at, like, okay, how do we work with these local synagogues about spotting abuse and how they can help their women? Because those are really, those civic institutions have so much power that they can use for good, but oftentimes they're ill-equipped, right? You know, mm-hmm. they think, oh, okay, if you just pray, <laughs> it'll go away. Keep praying for him, keep praying for him. And next thing you know, it's a funeral. You're burying that woman. Yeah. So we need to really work through these civic institutions in my mind and with various community leaders and, and, and helping them being able to support women and men because women aren't the only ones being abused um, that need to leave these type of situations. Rachel, where are we with legislation? And, you know, is there a way to make restraining orders tougher? Like, like where are we on the, I guess, on the legal side of things? We have really good legislation. We just don't enforce it. We have, you know, a ban on convicted felons owning guns. But if you have a misdemeanor domestic violence charge and you live in, um, you know, Mississippi, no one's going to take your gun. You know, you live in Michigan, no one's going to take your gun. So I think that it's a matter of enforcing the legislation that we do have. Now, there are a couple of states that have passed um, coercive control laws where you can't, you can't, you know, coerce someone into, you know, doing what you want them to do or whatever. California has passed a coercive control law, Connecticut. And then there's a few other states looking at them. I'm not sure where they're at right now. I know Maryland and New York were looking at them. And then the other the other piece of it is offering parole to victims who essentially killed their way out of um, a violent 
relationship. It was a killer be killed mm-hmm. kind of situation. And so there's a lot of states now looking at their parole and probation boards and seeing if there's alterations they can make. New York passed one a few years ago, um, California. Wasn't there a woman in Florida who was taken in for simply firing warning shots? Yeah. At her yeah. Husband for yeah. Same time. The same time Trayvon Martin was killed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was sentenced to 20 years. She's out now. But, you know, that that's it. That is an interesting example, because that's one of the states that has stand your ground laws and stand your ground laws were meant to kind of address the shortcomings of self-defense. Like, you know, what if it wasn't somebody breaking into your house, but it was somebody threatening you out on the street? So all these states have stand your ground laws, which is does seem to be a like a growing movement and yet stand your ground laws women almost can never use stand your ground laws almost never so a lot of the problem isn't with the legislation itself it's with the gender discrimination and the bias when it's implemented yeah and to speak to the legislation part i think for black women especially engaging with the justice system comes with a lot of historical baggage. Um, It starts with, do you feel comfortable calling the police? Are the police going to shoot you (laughs) when they arrive, right? These are the questions going through a black woman who's being abused mind. If I have a teenage son at home, are they going to misidentify my teenage son as a suspect, not my abuser? Like there, There are a lot of subterranean issues here that we need to unpack access to legal advice because we can we can have great policy and great legislation but what happens when you can't afford a lawyer <laughs> you, yeah you know yeah i think there's a really significant population of women who are at greater risk of domestic abuse who even when we put the right legislation in place will still not be able to access it and and the law really work on their favor in the way it needs to right and do you want to put someone in prison who is from your own marginalized community, community already? Which a lot of yeah. people don't want, right? And, and you know, right. I think ab- the abolitionists have really kind of brought this conversation to the fore about, like, prison not necessarily being the solution, especially if that man is going to be out at some point. And, you know, we, we've seen so many cases of men going to prison for domestic abuse, doing their stint, coming out, killing another woman. Right. So we're kind of putting this problem away for a certain amount of time. So if we look at the idea of restorative justice and what that looks like in some communities that may need to be the model that's prioritized because those women don't want their abuser in jail. They want their abuser to stop abusing them and abusing other people. But they're not going to engage with the just the justice system or law enforcement. So we need to figure out. So how do we help and protect them? Okay, so then let's end with this. Men. (laughs) Garbage ass, terrible ass men. What role can men play in ending the culture of misogyny and violence against women? Because we talk about the phrase toxic masculinity, Mm -hmm. and I pulled this up because I want to make sure that I'm defining it properly. (laughs) Toxic masculinity refers to the notion that some people's idea of manliness perpetuates domination, homophobia, and aggression. So my last question to both of you, what are the ways that men can help change the culture on this issue? 
You know, that's such a great question. And when I'm talking about this with the men in my life and how I intend to talk to my son about this is that toxic ma masculinity, patriarchy, all of these, you know, constructs, this big academic language, it harms men too, right? It doesn't allow you to experience the fullness of your humanity. You're not allowed to be empathetic. You're not allowed to cry when you need to. You're not allowed to express the range of your emotions. So you curtail the human experience. You're not being yourself because you're so conscious of the perception of not being man enough. So don't think this only harms me as a woman or harms the children that look up to you. It's harming you because you become a prisoner of this construct. So that's where I always start the conversation. I'm like, this is bad for you because if you, you know, humans are kind of selfish, right? So if you, if you <laughs> frame it as this is bad for women, they're like, well, fuck it, I'm not a woman. <laughs> like, you know, that, that's how people yeah. think about it. But yeah. if you're like, no, this is really bad for you. This is why you're depressed and you can't say it. This is why you're going through it and you can't even share it with your, your homies that you're with all the time. So if you start from that place of like, okay, so this is what toxic masculinity does to men and how it makes you harm yourself. And then yeah. you say, this is what toxic masculinity does to the people around you, like the women that you love. And unfortunately, it's kind of sad that we have to use the women that men are connected to as an entry point because you should just care of a woman irrespective if she's romantically or biologically or community-wise attached to you. But for a lot of men, they're not going to care unless that's their daughter, their mother, their sister. So you have to explain yeah. how, like, the behavior you perpetuate, how it affects the women in your orbit. And then you say, you need to check your friends. That's what I always say. You need to check your boys because I can't do it. Like there are mm -hmm. men that everyone knows that guy is an abuser and you still have him around. Why is that? Mm -hmm. You should be ashamed. Like I, I'm, I shame people. I don't care. I'll be like, why is he around? Why do you <laughs> roll with him? I don't want to hang with you because you hang with him. It's you kind of using mm -hmm. that language. Like why are you allowing this man still to have social access, even though, you know, he gives women drinks he gives them a bit too many drinks so he can fondle them. Even though he shouts mm -hmm. at his girlfriend, even though he's controlling and you turn a blind eye because he's not doing it to you, but you're actually one of the few people that can check him, right? And, and that's kind yeah. of like my three-step way of unpacking this idea of toxic masculinity and then giving them something they can, I guess, action on. And my whole thing is, and this is how my group of friends work, we see ourselves as a community and a family, and we have to be able to be radically honest with each other. If you have that type of dynamic with a man, and he's a man that you know has influence, you should be able to have those conversations. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I approach it. Yeah. I mean, I just think there's all kinds of ways that we can slightly reframe so many of the conversations that, that we're having. And I, and I have to say, like, I know more good men than bad. Yeah. And I've been in a lot of prisons, so I know yeah. a lot of bad men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. It's just like, I I think I can have this optimism about having conversations about to toxic masculinity because my father, my husband, my cousins, like my friends, I'm surrounded by like really remarkable men who are equally grieved by what men are doing to other yeah. women. So. Yeah, we want to emphasize there are good men, more good men than bad men, but more of those good men need to speak up. Yeah. Well, right. I wish that we had more time, but we are out of time. This has been an amazing conversation. Christiana, as always, thank you. 
for being back on the show. It's so good to be back. Send the best to the husband <laughs> and will. that child of yours with all of that wonderful hair. I will. I will. <laughs> <laughs> and Rachel Louise Snyder, the book is No Visible Bruises. Thank you so much for all that you do on the journalistic side of this issue as well. Thank you both for going beyond the scenes with us today. Thank you. Thanks, Roy. For further resources and support, visit the National Domestic Violence Hotline at www.thehotline.org. Thehotline.org. See you next week. Listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.